Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, it's Adriel Hampton here with Government 2.0 Radio on Blog Talk Radio. Thanks for tuning in tonight uh, for our conversation with Lewis Shepard, who is uh, CTO of Microsoft's Institute for <coughs> Advanced Technology and Governments. I want to remind folks uh, from the front that we will be taking uh, any questions you have for Mr. Shepard uh, at about 9.30 EST, and you can uh, dial in at 347-539-5704 if you have any questions. And I uh, also want to welcome my uh, co-host, Steve Lunsford, tonight. Uh, Steve, obviously the big news this week was the Open Government Directive. What kind of uh, things have you been uh, noticing about folks' reaction to that document released uh, earlier this week? Yeah, good evening, Adriel. I, I think that obviously is, is the big news. I think most people have been pretty positive about it, as, as you would anticipate. Um, we've been waiting for this for, for a while to kind of see exactly what would shape out, what mandates would be thrown down. Um, and so most of the reaction I see is, I've seen is pretty positive. There are a couple things that, that I noted that I think I, I personally would have liked to have seen a little more. A, a lot of the directive, I think, um, focused around citizen interaction, which is obviously a good thing, but uh, I would have also liked to have seen some, some mandates about breaking down some, some of the, the barriers between agencies um, and, and looking at uh, how do you communicate and do a better job of collaboration and sharing success and, and learning from failures uh, from an intra-agency standpoint or interagency standpoint. Um, and then also the, the, the one thing that, that I, I find be interesting to kind of see how this goes through is that, you know, there's so many challenges going on right now from the federal level um, in terms of the various missions that each agency are trying to execute on. And, and, and here comes along yet another unfunded mandate. Um, and so it would be interesting to see kind of how, how much enthusiasm uh, agencies really kind of put towards meeting the spirit, I think, of of the directive, not just the literal mandates uh, and the deadlines that as they roll out over the next 30, 45, uh, 60, and 120 days. And it, it, obviously, it's it's always easier to be a critic than it is to uh, to write the thing. But there, there's been a lot of positive uh, feedback on it. I, I guess the the kind of deadline orientation uh, was the one thing I was a little, little bit down on, just just because uh, sometimes it's too easy when in the environment we're in now you have the top level, the politicians kind of pushing open government collaboration, the kind of Gov2O concepts, and then you have a lot of enthusiasm, I think, among uh, kind of evangelist types in the uh, kind of frontline areas. And it's always been the, the more middle management that, that folks have looked at as being the folks you have to change to uh, really push this stuff ahead. Now there's a clear guidelines, but my uh, hope is that people won't use it as a checklist, but will, in fact, use it as kind of a impetus to do you know more and, and be very creative uh, in, in how they interact. And definitely working uh, between agencies, among agencies that are, that are doing cool things is is an imperative. Yeah, and I don't think the force, you know, the forcing function of, of having the deadlines isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think to a large extent, as you mentioned, um, there have been a few evangelists, a few change agents within organizations that have really gravitated and 
um, to, to using these tools in, in some very pointed ways to, to solve, uh, you know, individual problems. I, I think to a large extent, we haven't seen, you know, if you're looking at this as a, as a three-tiered pyramid, a lot of the, the activity has been going on in that middle level, not necessarily middle management, but kind of in the middle level. You have a, a large employee base, I think, on the bottom level and, and to a large extent the, the, the uppermost triangle of the pyramid that, that really hasn't uh, necessarily moved out um, to figure out how to use the, these types of social tools and these types of social channels throughout the organization. So how to use them for, uh, you know, both internal collaboration, external collaboration, uh, how do you use them to, uh, whether it's it's from your, your HR and recruitment to uh, public affairs. I mean, they've been attacked in very, I think, very specific chunks of organizations, not necessarily pulled through entire workflows and entire um, kind of agency missions. So it'll be interesting to see that, again, if, that if, if, they, if they use these deadlines as a forcing function to, to start to do that, you see some greater success that maybe then you start to see the tools being pulled through on a more wide, widely accepted basis throughout agencies. Definitely. And uh, we've got our guest, uh, Lewis Shepard, uh, on the line. And maybe, Lewis, do you want to weigh in on the Open Government Directive, kind of the big news of this week? Well, hi, guys, and uh, thanks for having me on. Um, it was the big news of the week, and I think uh, as the discussion that uh, the two of you have just engaged in shows, uh, the reason it's such big news, I think, is uh, because it underlines just how interested uh, the technical public and the uh, the using non-technical public of uh, public data is in uh, progress along openness and transparency. I, I think the fact that there was so much buzz just around the directive and its announcement uh, and so much interest and engagement in uh, follow-up in um, questioning every comment and uh, semicolon in the directive and what the implications are agency by agency, um, I think it guarantees that there's going to be um, heated interest in this uh, going forward. Um, I think that by itself, the degree of public engagement and interest is, um, is, is wholly positive. Um, I have to uh, point out that there have been a lot of skeptical voices, too, and frankly, it wouldn't be a very American policy rollout if there uh, weren't uh, questions raised about something that government was doing. And um, I think that uh, the Sunlight Foundation and uh, John Wonderlich and I engaged in a little uh, point-counterpoint uh, uh, on his blog uh, comments about um, uh, the, the, the meaning of some of the definitional language in uh, the directive, particularly in the uh, aspects that uh, are requiring three major data sources to uh, be released within a certain amount of time and what actually uh, constitutes a high-value data source under the terms of the directive. That's not clear, uh, the bureaucratic language and some of the other uh, segments of the directive. Uh, leave a little to the imagination, which when uh, large bureaucracies and governmental staffs are involved uh, can be uh, suboptimal. But uh, I think the, uh, the level of activity that's going to go on around uh, uh, 
open government and the open government data initiative is going to uh, it's, it's going to uh, provide room for consultants and uh, uh, beltway bandits and uh, people uh, engaged in um, guerrilla activity just to get government data out of the hands of government and into the hands of the people for a long time, and that's all to the good. And I don't know uh, if either of you have been and looked at um, uh, at some of the, the 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 new website that's been put up as well that that shows the cabinet commitments. Yeah, yeah. So, so we, uh, you know, I, I've been going through those, and and um, it's pretty pretty you know widespread. And this obviously doesn't speak to to those three data sets that that are part of the directive. These are, are obviously I think being used by the administration to to look at the, you know asking each of the capital level agencies to to push out what you know what what are some things that you're working on now that can kind of um, apply and kind of fall underneath this this broad bailiwick but it was interesting to see of the uh, 20 you know the 20 different uh, groupings there and that's just uh, for folks that want to follow along at home it's whitehouse.gov slash open uh, will take you to the kind of um, uh, the main portal there for the Open Government Initiative, and then uh, slash commitments will take you to the cabinet commitments. I, I had a, a another uh, couple of thoughts about the. Um, Lewis, Lewis, I don't know if it's just me. I can hardly hear you. Are you? Um... Let me actually try speaking into the phone. Is that? There you go. Yes, yeah, a little better. better. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I, I did have a couple other thoughts. Um, um, ones that uh, are sparked by uh, the directive and uh, by the its larger import. Uh, one is I was in a, um, a discussion up at Princeton earlier this week on Tuesday, and the stated topic, uh, this was at um, uh, Ed Felton's uh, Center for Information Technology Policy at the Woodrow Wilson School. The stated topic that uh, I gave and spoke on was uh, why government technology can be way ahead and far behind simultaneously, uh, can create such phenomenally successful uh, technologies as uh, uh, the Internet and things that uh, have uh, driven out of it and also uh, the things that you see in the intelligence community and in DOD every day and uh, products from DARPA and so forth. And yet, um, as government um, employees and government officials um, and the consumers of government services can tell you the day-to-day -day technologies of particularly federal government, but not exclusively federal um, uh, offices can really be um, far behind commercial equivalents and just the plain desktop technologies. Uh, and systems and software that uh, government agencies wind up uh, being stuck with year in, year out can, can be way behind. Um, I actually posed in the middle of that discussion on Tuesday because of the open government uh, directive, um, I posed a kind of counterintuitive um, assertion, which is that by and large the best and most advanced and successful government technology projects have all uh, emerged from a process of secrecy. That if you think of each of the hallmark government 
um, technology and information technology projects that are so often cited as uh, the kinds of things that government can uh, uniquely do and do such a great job of and provide uh, platforms uh, that last for decades and provide uh, great utility uh, for the public. The Internet is always cited. That grew out of um, classified work, actually. The, the whole intent of the original work on uh, Internet protocols and capabilities by Vint Cerf and his team was um, uh, part of Cold War thinking about survivability under nuclear attack. Uh, similarly, you have GPS is often cited as an absolutely valuable, critical, positive technology that came out of government. Again, this was an Air Force project uh, with very similar roots. Um, uh, more prosaic things like the uh, uh, you know, NASA's effort to reach the moon. Again, much of that work, particularly all the technological work, was done on um, classified uh, contracts with, uh, you know, name your Beltway Bandit, um, because it was seen as such a central component in the space race uh, with the Soviet Union at the time. And of course, if you go back to the the great granddaddy of tremendous government successful technology projects, the one that is cited metaphorically as what we need uh, continually um, for things like uh, countering cyber terrorism and uh, cybersecurity, the Manhattan Project. It's always asserted, we need a Manhattan Project. Well, that, that itself was also uh, run with a very tight, um, enormous uh, degree of, sec of secrecy and uh, very high level of security. And I, you know, hypothetically asked uh, whether or not it was essential for government projects around technology and advanced technology particularly uh, to be protected from the political or public uh, suasions that might uh, impinge upon their ability to operate um, smoothly and successfully, uh, to rely on a wall of secrecy between them and the public. And if that's uh, true, and I kind of drummed my fingers as I waited for the uh, audience to provide me with counterexamples, if that is true, then it certainly... Um, calls into question something that I've taken a great amount of interest in, along with many, many others in the Government 2.0 movement, and that's Tim O'Reilly's uh, really um, uh, hallmark uh, uh, assertion of the notion of, a, of government as a platform being a very important organizing principle um, around Gov 2.0 and where it's headed and open government in particular. So I think uh, there are still some fundamental questions about what the nature and role of, of openness is uh, for government, and particularly how we define government's relation with, uh, with citizens and how that relationship is mediated by the data that goes back and forth uh, one way or the other. I, I, don't, I certainly don't think this is a closed question. What do you think about that? So, so this is Steve. Let me ask a question. Do you think that they are mutually exclusive, that you can't have uh, projects that are still um, done for, for reasons of, of national security or whatever? And, and a lot of the examples you mentioned, right, were born out of the, the, the DOD space um, to a large extent. I would argue even the, the, uh, uh, the race to the moon, obviously, uh, well, well, 
uh, going through NASA, you have a, a lot of DoD expertise that was uh, being lent to that project as well. So, so are they mutually exclusive? Can you not have uh, an openness happening, especially from many of the civilian organ, uh, organizations, while there may be other projects that, again, are, are critical to national security or, or other reasons that may be going on uh, as they have for years? Well, my particular focus was on uh, innovation and particularly on government IT trying to keep up with and, if possible, to outstrip the innovation that actually goes on in the private sector. And I, uh, I, I'll be honest with you, I simply can't come up with, I'm not that smart, so I rely on other people. I'd love to have counterexamples where out of the vast budgets that have been available to um, federal agency CIOs and CTOs and their equivalents, depending on uh, titles, over the last 20 years, IT departments have been uh, staffed very well. You know, everybody complains about budgets year in, year out. But still, when you think about it comparatively, uh, government IT departments are staffed and resourced at a far higher degree than comparable private sector IT departments. It's just undeniable. So if, if that's been the case for decades, why haven't we seen great innovation coming out of government IT departments? Instead, as you guys know, the whole rationale for the Gov 2.0 movement has been the government in technology needs to catch up with where the Web 2.0 movement has been for the better part of a decade now. And certainly we saw uh, government being slow adopters uh, on the web itself in the 1990s. And um, I, I think there's something that's just uh, it, it delves over into political science, but there's something that's uh, inherent in the operation of large government bureaucracies, which uh, inhibits their ability to be agile and to develop and deploy and certainly to innovate along technical lines. And if that's so, then uh, we really have to rethink um, our fundamental premises when we're looking at how we can uh, tease innovation out of government, particularly uh, for something as fundamental as the notion of government as a platform. I think we have to really think very hard about um, what that uh, will mean in practice uh, what we're instituting and whether or not it has a chance to be successful, and if so, to you know really optimize uh, where we put resources into it. So, Lewis, that's a pretty provocative uh, thesis, and I'm, uh, I'm thinking about the national for your show. That's, that's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah, it's probably not provocative in every audience, but for for the evangelist types, perhaps. Um, I'm thinking of National Institutes of Health, but that's not really an IT collaboration project. So are, are you kind of posing that the secrecy uh, is positive because they're actually operating under a different set of rules than the public-facing uh, IT projects would be? Well, let me, let me uh, give you a short anecdote. Um, this has happened three different times now at you know, one or another of the kinds of Gov2.0 conferences that have gone on. Uh, it happened once in California and, and twice in D.C. at conferences where I had uh, somebody come up to me uh, after I'd spoken on a panel or, or given some little talk uh, and said, I work for fill-in-the-blank federal 
civilian agency, and it's a real shame that we haven't been able to keep up with uh, you guys in the intelligence community, because you guys in DOD have been way ahead on gov o activities. And when I think back to uh, what enabled uh, us at DIA and some of my peers and colleagues, uh, up at, particularly up at the uh, ICES, the Intelligence Community Enterprise Services um, uh, Office uh, within ODNI, when I think back to what actually, you know, if you think fundamental principles, what actually enabled us to uh, to do things uh, a little more nimbly and agilely than had been done before in government. Certainly a piece of the success was, I don't know how big a factor, whether it was a controlling factor, was that uh, we didn't have a lot of people looking over our shoulder. Uh, we, you know, everybody complains about having uh, 535 Capitol Hill shareholders, well, except for a couple of committees with whom you can establish good relationships. We didn't have shareholder interest. Uh, we didn't have um, uh, the kind of, let me put it this way, in wartime, in a uh, Defense Department component, as DIA was and as several of the other intelligence agencies are, you actually have fairly wide latitude within legal bounds uh, on how uh, you can uh, spend your money and deploy your resources, including people. And I think we use that flexibility to the hilt. And a lot of that uh, probably would not be possible in, uh, let's you know, take the, uh, the piece of government that is uh, today seen as uh, leading the way most fervently on OpenGov and Gov2.0, and that's uh, the White House and uh, CIO Vivek Kundra. He's got the eyes of, of the nation and the world on him. Um, Vivek is raked over the coals constantly, you know, by a variety of critics, uh, both on his performance, his background, you know, the money that he's spending, the contracts he's awarding. Uh, a lot of that public scrutiny, I, you know, I'm, I'm all for it. I engage in it, but I can't help but notice the, um, uh, the, the kind of slipstream that classified work tends to afford. Uh, a technology manager, um, the lack of public friction. I'm not arguing that it's a good thing. I'm just pointing out as a as an observer that it, it you know we may need to rethink uh, how we uh, our expectations of success from government and to uh, come to some hard terms on um, what the, the limiting factors and constraints are on government IT workers. Yeah, Lewis, this is Steve Lunsford. You know, a, a lot of what you're, you're saying seems to resonate um, with a couple of guests we had on a few weeks back. Um, one of my colleagues from Deloitte, Bill Eggers, and, and John O'Leary from uh, the Kennedy School with their new book, If We Could Put a Man on the Moon, where, I heard, I heard you know, they, they make um, the point that, that, that government is just different. You can't, you know, because of the the, the strange tie between the political process and the legislative side and the, and, the, and the folks that need to actually get work done, that there is, it, it just is different than it is on the on the um, commercial side. And maybe that's why when you kind of take things out of process that you see you see things getting done from a government perspective, you take them out of process, whether it's due to 
uh, again, national security concerns are from the Intel community standpoint or, or some of the other projects that they uh, you know, can, can quote-unquote bend the rules because they're, they're working against a major imperative versus just the, the normal course of business where a lot of uh, regulatory and, and other um, things that are set up from a uh, uh, legislative side can sometimes hinder the process versus what the commercial sector can accomplish. Now, I'm trying to, to, to think. I mean, one of the premises I was thinking exactly about that same thesis from uh, Bill Eggers and John O'Leary, and one of the things they point out is just how few and far between major successes are. So you're, you're extending that to major successes being done in, a, in a, a much more confidential environment, in a secret environment with a lot more perhaps uh, process leeway and maybe even more money. I can. Well, I'm, simply, I'm simply pointing out that the, the projects that are cited uh, continually as being the, um, you know, the lighthouse government successes, um, which we should emulate, uh, and, and these are ones that are cited by, by Tim himself, Tim O'Reilly, in his argument for government as a platform, uh, GPS, the invention of the Internet, those were definitely created within a culture of of, of classified work which enabled um, agility and uh, certainly didn't uh, uh, have transparency um, in terms of their work. And uh, so that we have to, you know, I think we have to think about the fundamental contradictions here and what we're trying to do from a, a transparency and openness perspective and, and rethink the, the examples we're using. Yeah, no, I, actually, that's a good point. I mean, I think that it comes down a bit to the the kind of fluid definition of government 2.0, and it perhaps meaning to technologists, it's it's an IT thing, and then to to those of us who are more uh, on the communications collaboration front, it's more of a of a human thing. And I think you can definitely find good examples. Uh, outside of IT that, that have been public-facing, you know, more recently things like the Pillbox Project that the National Institutes of Health is working on uh, in, in <clears throat> with uh, other government agencies and with drug manufacturers. And I think you can also look at what the TSA has done in empowering their front line, uh, which I, I would say is, is well ahead of a lot of collaboration projects uh, by by uh, you know, Fortune 500 companies. Well, and and there's been I think a really helpful um, parallel meme, if you will, uh, alongside uh, the Gov 201, and that's the notion of Citizen 2.0. It's it's often expressed uh, where we definitely have to uh, if we're if we're focusing on the relationship of government and citizen, um, then. We, we really have to think of, of these things from a more fundamental, uh, almost political science and uh, social science um, and communitarian aspect, uh, that that'll be more helpful and valuable than simply focusing on technology. From a technology standpoint, you're talking about um, government emulating uh, and replacing business practices um, typically provided by the private sector. Uh, you know, I'll I think the, the the plain and simple argument uh, that's made is uh, a kind of ra 
Reagan esque government doesn't work that well. It certainly doesn't work as well as the private sector in many ways. And so, you know, we we continue to have wave after wave of government employees showing up at agencies, um, large and small, federal and local, uh, and realizing that the internal technological tools available to government employees within government enterprises are substandard and suboptimal. When I came to Washington from grad school in 1985 uh, for a little stint at the Pentagon as a, a Soviet military analyst, uh, I came from uh, Stanford University out in Palo Alto and uh, had used computers there as a student. As an undergrad, I had used, um, uh, you know, a, a Macintosh, and, well, let's see, Mac came out in 84, I was already in grad school, but I had used an Apple IIc and IIe uh, as an undergrad already, and I show up at the Pentagon, and the uh, most advanced tool that I had on my desk was an IBM Selectric typewriter. Mm. So that's replicated over and over every day, that the things that are available and purchasable and deployable by government IT staffs are a cycle or two or five behind what's available to um, their private sector counterparts. And, and I guess that's some of the danger of something like the Open Government Directive having uh, no funding tied to it. Is if you're one of these places that's already behind in your basic IT, you've got to be uh, kind of banging your head against the wall at this point. Uh, I want to uh, invite anyone uh, who would like to call in. Uh, we've got a couple of lines uh, open. The call-in number is 347-539-5704, especially if you're interested if you can come up with an uh, example of, uh, <laughs> kind of IT revolution in government that doesn't uh, involve secrecy. So we can uh, bust up Lewis's point here, although... <laughs> uh, although I think it's a it's, it's a good uh, it's a good question for the movement. Um, luckily, it doesn't bother me, Lewis, because I don't uh, think that it's about IT. I think that, you know you've got to uh, get into the, the the policy arena, get into the idea of yeah, what is it that you want government to accomplish? Um, yeah, I agree entirely, and I think in fact uh, you know one of the reasons for stating it so provocatively is I'd like to kick the crutch of technology out from under the argument because I think it's almost um, uh, it's almost too easy and intellectually lazy for us and, and I work for a software company uh, for us to focus exclusively on uh, government reform through technology deployment. I, I certainly don't think that that's uh, as uh, empowering and going to take us as far as really focusing on the traditional kinds of governmental reform that Americans have cared about. So, well, so, so how much do you think um, this is about culture, right? Not just the technology, but about culture. There was a an interesting post. I don't know if either of you caught it this week from um, uh, Nick Charney up in, in Canada that talked about the fact that it, it seems you know we have you're bumping into the same folks. Uh, talking about the same stuff time and time again, and that uh, you know, as you have these uh, evangelists um, out there talking about this for the past year or eighteen months or longer, uh, and yet not a lot of change has been seen, especially throughout organizations. That there's a uh, you know, a, a, there could be burnout. That folks, you know, they, they're going to just 
get sick and tired of beating their head against the wall and and not seeing uh, a lot of things happen, whether from a technological standpoint or from, um, frankly, a cultural standpoint. So how much of this do you think is is tied to kind of the the, the culture of the way, you know, this is the way government works and and folks are just resistant to change? I think that's probably um, a very insightful point. I um, recall, so we're now speaking in December 2009, early this year, uh, Chris Rasmussen and uh, a couple of others, and then Mark Drapeau uh, following on, um, wrote or commented about the fact that the Gov 2.0 movement was already facing a midlife crisis. And by that they meant that... Uh, um, Forward progress had had slowed, if not stalled, and was in many ways uh, hitting up against a uh, an internal wall, agency by agency, including in the earliest of adopters, um, uh, the wall uh, defined by exactly what you're talking about about culture, bureaucratic culture, uh, internal political culture, and um, a, a culture among. Uh, users and uh, the, the business or mission side of, uh, of federal agencies, which, um, again, did not uh, want to have the bright, shiny future of their work defined exclusively by a narrow range of technologies that were being perhaps over-evangelized. Um, and uh, uh, it turned out, I think... Uh, we're still discovering. I believe it's turned out that you've got almost a dialogue of the deaf where uh, people who are understandably quite taken with the the power and range of, of new social technologies, in particular social software and approaches, uh, who uh, sing its praises and yet um, really aren't speaking in a way that uh, that answers the long-standing uh, mission side, user centric, uh, and sometimes completely atechnical uh, issues that that real people face inside agencies and as the consumers of uh, agency services. Uh, I, I I think that I got excited when I heard the phrase "government as a platform" um, and the way that uh, Tim O'Reilly has described. Um, its uh, its its visionary reach, except uh, from ironically from the technological standpoint, and I think that's perhaps what's underlay some of the uh, the reaction, some of the uh, skeptical or a little bit dubious uh, reaction to the open government directive this week. Lewis, that makes me the the whole idea of the government 2.0 movement, uh, you know, being in a midlife crisis when it was less than a year year old. I think there's also some of the expectation that people have from the the startup world, where I was just looking up uh, statistics, and it looks like in 2008 the average life cycle of a technology startup uh, was about six years. And, you know, governments have been around for thousands of years. Ours for, you know, we're going on uh, our third uh, uh, century here of American government. And... Uh, Sometimes I think we just have to take a deep breath and realize that uh, you know Rome wasn't built in a day. <laughs> True. Good point. 
but of course, we also don't want to get burnt out and all leave for the private sector. That 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 would not be uh, fantastic either. Um, <clears throat> Here, here's the I, other thing: how do, how do we look at actually getting citizens to getting to be engaged? So there's there's this also problem of if you build it, will, will they come? So the directive specifically, you know, talks a lot about citizen engagement. Yet, I I, I would argue at least that the the initial layers of this. Uh, even when you opened up the comment for, for the Open Gov initiative, um, that the vast majority of Americans aren't yet used to uh, communicating and, and uh, you know, we don't even know if they want to communicate with their government via Facebook, other than, again, those, those diehard hardcores or, uh, uh, you know, that are in government or around the business of government or folks that have an agenda. So if you looked at, um, you know, when the president did his first online town hall, uh, you know, the, the example was is that uh, uh, folks wanted to ask a question about the legalization of marijuana, so which you know they kind of game the system to kind of uh, pump up the the numbers. So uh, the question is, how do you get folks and get you? How do we get the the citizenry to know that there are new and different ways to actually engage with with agencies and and which are the right tools and and you know is it even practical to build up? Uh, a Facebook page. When you look at, you know, if you would have, if they would have spent time and energy doing doing such for for MySpace, maybe that wasn't reaching the audience, and people have kind of migrated to the next big thing. Any thoughts around that? Yeah, I, I think that uh, what we saw in the 2008, uh, particularly presidential campaign, and particularly the Obama campaign, uh, was a a very smart, very intuitive understanding of the um, the bi-directional importance of this communicative relationship we're talking about that hasn't necessarily been uh, entirely reflected in the gov 2 aspect, in the governing piece, and not just by the Obama administration, but by people in government. Uh, what you had was, it's, and you were touching on this, what you had was a very fluid and natural uh, set of channels of communication that really were attuned to the ways that uh, tens of millions of people uh, were beginning to communicate with family members and with um, co-workers and with uh, neighborhood uh, uh, friends and, and associates and, uh, and, and uh, circles of affinity. Uh, and that means using uh, social networks and even prosaically, you know, the old tool of email uh, in ways that fit into the natural rhythm of, uh, of how people engage in their everyday lives. And frankly, uh, uh, private sector and media uh, things like, um, uh, like uh, you know, Dancing with the Stars and... Uh, uh, the whole variety of uh, reality TV shows and entertainment shows that rely upon um, a bi-directional either voting system, um, uh, and those are often tried to be gamed as well, but uh, at least people feel uh, something as fundamental as their voice being heard is a central organizing principle. Uh, and I'm not convinced that uh, you know you could scare up 15 people outside the D.C. Beltway who think that uh, anything within Gov2O is 
centrally organized on the principle of their voice being heard. I think much more there's been a tremendous focus, and I understand why, and I'm empathetic to it. Uh, there's been much more of a focus on how do we make large government organizations work more efficiently and more effectively in their mission. And rarely is their mission uh, defined in a way that has a primacy upon uh, letting the little person have their say. So I, I, I really do think we have to kind of rethink what uh, what we're aiming for here. If we're really only aiming for how do we make large government bureaucracies work better, then we're doing a great job of that. Um, but we're going to be uh, doing all of this uh, technological and even bureaucratic culture reform um, within a bell jar. If instead we're really trying to um, engage the American people at local and state as well as federal levels uh, in improving the way that they themselves engage in self-government, which is what we're supposed to be all about, then I think we have to, uh, I saw you retweeted my kick the crutch of technology out from under this, we actually have to um, turn the volume down on a lot of the uh, technological gee whiz aspects of this, maybe focus, okay, what are the the, uh, the software and other technical tools that people have already become familiar with, have already adopted in, in their everyday lives, uh, and um, and focus really on how we define and, uh, and support the relationship of people to their government and not the other way around. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a fantastic point. You're kind of... Uh preaching my language as someone who's tried to <laughs> try to work some of this in the political arena without without much success but i i think that um tim o'reilly brought up uh did bring up a point about this when he was on the show back in march which was uh you know at some point the people are going to be at a place where if the politicians aren't say engaged in social media they won't get reelected. and i think we're a long way off from that in that right now there's no pain point for Governance not being involved in uh, in the two-way dialogue. I mean, Obama uh, did it, but he w it wasn't really so much two-way. It was just getting onto the uh, channels where people were, you know, as far as advertising in video games. And then uh, you have politicians trying to replicate that, but it's the idea of, you know, just blasting out their email newsletter through Twitter accounts or on Facebook or how many Facebook friends you can get, without fundamentally changing. Uh, you know, any of the way we do government. And it's easy to do as long as you have the, the hottest issues are, you know, tea parties and birth certificates and death panels, right? People are not so focused on the, the nuts and bolts of, of the real governance issues that uh, we could be changing, I think, through the new forms of mass communication. Yeah, and I think one other related point is that um, I believe that if we... Um, if we allow ourselves to stretch um, our, our definition of what the Gov 2.0 movement should be about and uh, to stretch our uh, resources in, in terms of time and, and public attention on, on, on what we highlight in this uh, movement, away perhaps from, and I say this ironically because I used to work for a large government agency, we focus less on large government agencies and perhaps even less on 
agencies and offices themselves, I'll, I'll give you an example of something that, that uh, I think might be more valuable because it actually hits people where they live, and that's the work that Carl Malamud has been doing around, um, it's variously called, you know, Law 2.0, um, but it's, uh, it's essentially uh, extending openness and this uh, same focus on, on transparency and openness of data uh, into the uh, the third branch of government, the judicial world, uh, because that's actually where uh, people wind up uh, in, in their private lives, in their uh, public um, professional lives. That's where they engage with government uh, probably far more frequently than almost anything else except uh, 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 health care. And, uh, yeah, Lewis, I'm sorry, we got just about 30 seconds left, so I wanted to okay. let you know there. Um, so, well, I'm, I'm, I'm still optimistic about the movement, and I think there's uh, room for a lot of uh, uh, further progress, and um, I hope, along with you guys, that uh, I can continue to play a little bit of a role. Thank you so much. It was a great discussion. We could go on for another uh, 30 minutes, I'm sure. Uh, so I want to thank uh, Lewis Shepard. I believe we're, we're uh, off of uh, our live broadcast now, but it'll continue to run for a minute. Um, thank you, and good to uh, good to finally talk to you, uh, having yeah. not met you when we were both in San Francisco. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah, and thanks, thanks much, you, uh, Steve. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Yeah, uh, we'll, we'll talk soon. Is, is your son still up and listening? You know what? I think you may have put him to sleep. <laughs> well, hopefully not the rest of our listeners. And, no, no. Uh, he, uh, he he actually got him to crash just before we got on, so it all worked out. That's good. Uh, next week on the show, we're going to have uh, Craig Thomler from uh, the uh, Australian uh, kind of government reform through technology movement, and I'm hoping that uh, Craig can talk to us about the uh, Australian Gov20 Task Force uh, report that also uh, just came out. Uh, a lot of good uh, kind of policy and uh, forward-looking documents coming out about how uh, folks around the world are trying to implement uh, kind of open government collaboration into their operations. So we'll be excited to talk to him. We'll be back uh, next uh, Sunday. Uh, Watch Twitter, uh, Gov2 Radio, for uh, possible updates about the time as the uh, the time difference in Australia is uh, significant. Uh, thank you so much, everyone, and good night. Good night.